Well, we're not supposed to be here today, but we are. This is really nice. I like this. Very nice. So if any of you are responsible, thank you very much for this new podium. Um, I've wanted to, uh, well, I've wanted to be here all along. We've enjoyed being away, but um, wanted to be here last week, but we weren't sure how our schedule's going to be, and I'm delighted to be here this morning and ask David if I could introduce our speaker Uh, Ricky Mill was a very important part, not just Ricky, but Annette, his wife. Uh, They were a very important part of the beginning years of Grace Community Church. I I came here 15 years ago, August 1, uh, when the church was four years old. And for three and a half years of that, uh, Ricky shepherded Grace Community Church into its, uh, to the form that it would take that has blossomed into what it is now, so uh, if you have problems about Grace Community Church, it's Ricky's fault. It's the way he <laughs> built it. Um, what a gracious man. He's one of the, the, the missionaries that we support. Ricky works with uh, Providence Baptist Church part-time as a pastor of counseling, but he also has a counseling ministry, Barnabas Ministries. And the perfect blend of the truth and mercy, love, compassion, all of it going. Ricky is a great counselor. He has a great way of, as Proverbs says, uh, a, a skilled counselor can pull out the deep parts of a man's heart, woman's heart. And yet, first and foremost, he's a man of the word. So we're delighted to have Ricky. And he's not, he wouldn't be near what he is without his lovely wife, Annette. I, I saw the way that the old timers pounced on these guys uh, this morning when we came in just before the service started. So we're blessed to have Ricky and Annette Mill with us, and Ricky, share the word. It's uh, interesting how you uh, respond when there are appeals, as we just heard from David a minute ago, to get involved in the music ministry of the church and the creative arts ministry. I remember as a 10 or 12-year-old, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia, at First Presbyterian Church. My daddy was from Scotland, and so I was uh, legitimately a Presbyterian. And uh, I remember the morning that Mrs. Harrell, who was the choir director at our church, made an appeal. She was going to start a children's choir. And she made an appeal for all of the, of the younger folks in the congregation to, uh, to come and to be a part of that children's choir. Well, my mother sang in the adult choir, and Mrs. Harrell was one of her close friends. And so I was uh, volunteered the next Saturday morning, 9 o'clock, to be at the church to uh, begin practicing with this, uh, with this children's choir. And so I went uh, under duress, but I, I was there. And uh, I'll never forget this. After the rehearsal of this first rehearsal for the children's choir was over with, just as it ended, Mrs. Harrell said, uh, uh, Ricky, if you wouldn't mind, would you just stay behind for a minute? And I thought, she has recognized talent. She's going to ask me to be the soloist in this, in this children's choir. And so I, I waited till everyone left the room. And Mrs. Harrell came over to me, and this is what she said. She said, Ricky, I just believe there are better ways that you can spend your Saturday mornings. <laughs> so when I hear an appeal to uh, get involved in, in music, I have, uh, I have some trauma in my, in my past that uh, is a little conflicting, but I, I trust that, uh, and I know that God has given many of you gifts in that area, 
And it's, uh, it's always a delight to use the gifts God gives you for His glory. Uh, we're going to look at a, a passage this morning that um, was assigned to me in your study of the life of Joseph. And I wanted to begin by just uh, letting you observe uh, some pictures. And uh, two of those pictures are Pulitzer Prize winning pictures that capture the drama and, uh, and, and the emotions of, of events when individuals were reunited with those that they loved after long seasons of absence. Uh, the one on the bottom there in 1973 as the Vietnam War uh, came to a close and prisoners of war were released. This was a photograph of one of those prisoners of war returning and his family for the first time uh, being able to embrace him and he them. And really no words could, uh, could articulate the little saying that uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. How could you describe the moment that is etched on the faces of that family and undoubtedly on the face of that soldier as uh, they were reunited for the first time? Uh, a similar kind of thing when the Berlin Wall in, in 1989 was, uh, was dismantled and uh, Germany was united. The opportunity for families to once again enjoy each other's presence without threat uh, was opened up. And uh, here we see two gentlemen who uh, haven't been able to embrace and celebrate life together for years uh, coming together. And that moment was captured uh, in, in, in a profound way to just express the, the, the intimacy and the, and the drama of reunions. But there's a certain type of reunion that, uh, that Corey Ten Boom illustrates because uh, reunions, um, when the separation has been caused by pain or trauma, uh, there needs to be reconciliation before there can be reunion. The, uh, the kind of uh, reconciliation that uh, is necessitated is often uh, difficult to embrace. In uh, Joseph's story, in chapters 43 through 45, we have a description of uh, his reunion and ultimately his rec- uh, reconciliation with his brothers. Corey Ten Boom, in, in, uh, in her book that, that chronicles her experience and that of her sister Betsy and their family as they, uh, as they grew up and found themselves ultimately involved in efforts to uh, protect Jewish people from, uh, from, the, from the German government when uh, their country, Holland, was, uh, was invaded. She was born in Amsterdam and grew up in, a, in another little community. Her father was a watchmaker, had a, had a shop. And above that shop was uh, their home. And in that home, they built a false room uh, behind a wall and kept Jewish people safe from the Nazi regime and helped them to escape into freedom. She was ultimately, along with... Uh, a number of her family members apprehended, and you may know the story that is uh, it's talked about in her book, The Hiding Place. But uh, she and her sister and others in her family were sent to concentration camps. Four of her family died 
including her sister Betsy, in concentration camps. Corey herself, through a, uh, through a, a, um, a kind of a, a paperwork error, was released. And for 30 years, she traveled all over the world telling her story and the story of her family and, and the story of God's goodness and faithfulness. On one occasion, it was the first time that she'd actually gone back to Germany uh, to speak in a church. And she describes the moment after that church service was over when she was about ready to leave And here's how she describes it. She says, It was at the church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man who stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, the pain on Betsy's face. He, that is this former German SS officer. He came up to me as the church was emptying. And he was beaming and he was bowing. Thank you to think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to others, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the anger and the vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathe the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on His. When He tells us to love our enemies, He gives, along with the command, the love itself. That was a reconciliation. And that is the the stuff of what Joseph experienced in Egypt as he was able to, uh, to gather with his brothers And to uh, finally discern that they were in a place where he could uh, safely do what his heart had been pounding and throbbing to do for a number of years. And that was to reveal his true identity to his brothers. In this next slide, there is a uh, a kind of a, a graphic illustration of the movements of Joseph's story. His homeland was in Canaan. That's where his family lived. And uh, the first major part of his story involves uh, what happened to him as a 17-year-old boy when his brothers, who originally determined to kill him, uh, settled on a, on a plan B, and that was to, uh, to sell him uh, into slavery. And the folks he was sold to took him to Egypt and undoubtedly sold him to an Egyptian. And it was there that uh, Joseph's life in Egypt began. 
The, uh, the background of all that is, is Joseph's father was a man who, uh, who played favorites with his children. As you read through Joseph's story, it's amazing how often it comes out uh, that Jacob uh, had preferences. And so the other brothers grew up knowing that uh, Joseph was a favorite. And Joseph didn't help the situation at all because he played, played that card well and uh, ended up uh, sharing some dreams with his brothers that uh, further infuriated them and, uh, and drove them to a place of just hating him and wanting to dispose of him in some way. But it was that plan, ultimately, of how to dispose of him that placed him in Egypt. And when he got to Egypt, God began to, uh, to bless his life, to give him favor, Joseph's life is a, is a kind of a cycle of favor and then falling out of favor and then falling back into favor. But Joseph was in Egypt and uh, there was a famine. And as a result of that famine, ultimately his uh, brothers and his family came to Egypt to avail themselves of food from Egypt. Joseph had orchestrated the Egyptian uh, agricultural community in such a way that uh, Egypt at that time had plentiful resources and so, uh, as, as that chart indicates, uh, ten of his brothers traveled to Egypt and, uh, and asked for food, asked to purchase food from the Egyptians. That was 20 years or so after Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers and abandoned by his brothers. And the story begins to take on real-life drama as Joseph, for the first time in all of those years, is, is physically present with his brothers. It's a very emotional time for him. Joseph is a, is a fellow who is deeply emotional and stirred, uh, often to, to weeping and wailing. But the, uh, the first visit ended up in Joseph saying to his brothers, uh, in order for me to determine that you are not trying to deceive me, what I want you to do is go back home and Get your youngest brother you've told me about and bring him back here to, to Egypt. And then I'll, I'll continue to, uh, to work with you. But I'm going to keep one of you here. And so Simeon had to stay in Egypt under house arrest while, uh, while the other brothers traveled back to, uh, to their home. And they were there for a couple of years. And then uh, the food that they had acquired ran out and so there was need for a second trip which we'll look at in just a moment and they went back to Egypt after about two years to uh, try to obtain more food and it was in the context of their being back in Egypt that Joseph was able to orchestrate events in such a way that he was able to discern that his brothers had changed and that it would be safe and appropriate and timely to reveal to them who, in fact, he was. And that's, uh, that's where we kind of pick up the story. Uh, the last aspect of, uh, of Joseph's story is when the family relocates to Egypt and uh, is, uh, is provided for and protected by Joseph for as long as that was possible. The, uh, the importance of Joseph's life is, uh, is, is so significant. 
W.H. Griffith Thomas, in his commentary on Genesis, says there are basically four things that Joseph's life uh, is significant for, uh, among, I'm sure, many others. But the first is Joseph's historical significance, the role that he played in uh, preparing God's people to become a nation and to, uh, to begin to proceed as the nation that would represent him in the world. That was a strategic role from a human perspective. Joseph was the, the instrument that God used, and I'll describe that in a little more detail in just a moment. The second thing that uh, Thomas mentions is the remarkable proof of the quiet operation of divine providence. And as we'll see, it was Joseph's conviction that God was a God who was sovereign and providential and who, who worked in the affairs of men and nations in ways that were designed for their good, for their blessing, that, uh, that his story is so uh, important and, uh, and, and educational and beneficial to us. He's also a splendid example of personal character. I'm sure you've studied already his, uh, his sexual purity, uh, all of the dimensions of um, uh, his patience in suffering, and then ultimately, as we'll see this morning, his, uh, his passion to forgive and to provide for his family uh, is a part of his story that's endearing. Um, the last thing is the striking series, series of typical representations of Jesus Christ. Joseph, time and again, is a human picture, a human picture of what Christ would be and would do as he came into human history to uh, in the fullest expression of God's nature and character provide for you and for me in our salvation. And so Joseph is significant. Uh, this next slide is, 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 is identifying his historical significance. I asked my wife if showing a pregnant lady's tummy was going to be scandalous in the worship service, and she assured me that she didn't know. Uh, <laughs> but Joseph was critical in the birth of a nation. And if you look at, uh, if you look at this chart... In order for a nation to be a nation, it has to have a population. It has to have people. It also has to have some social structure, some government, uh, some way of organizing itself uh, as, as an entity. And it also has to have land. It has to have borders. Uh, those are kind of essentials for, for a group of people to be a nation. And as you, as you look, it was Joseph who who provided, in the, in the analogy of the birth of a nation, it was Joseph that provided the womb. And 400 years of gestation. Now, ladies, uh, you ought to be glad it's just nine months. It took God 400 years uh, of protection and uh, provision in the womb of Egypt to uh, prepare uh, to thrust this nation out and organize it and place it within its, uh, within, its, within its borders for his blessing and his work. But Joseph was the critical person in Egypt. It starts with a little family living in Canaan. And that family, through Joseph's uh, skill, is brought to Egypt. And then for 400 years, that little family develops into a critical mass of humanity 
divided into 12 tribes that we know of the nation that we know of as the nation of Israel and it was that protection that uh, Joseph provided by God's sovereign and providential work in his life that enabled that nation to be at a place where 400 years after they came they were thrust out of of the protective womb of Egypt and thrust into a desert and then as the chart indicates in the desert it was Moses who uh, who was God's instrument to organize that nation in terms of its government civil laws uh, that uh, organized those people in terms of in that at that point being a theocracy a, a people under God's rule <clears throat> And then ceremonial laws that, uh, that organize their, their worship. And moral laws, the Ten Commandments and other, other laws that, uh, that set the, the standard for how they were to live together as a people. And so this uh, critical mass of people under, under Joseph's uh, leadership was organized and prepared to be a nation under Moses' leadership. And then they moved into their land with borders, the land of Canaan, the promised land, where they would grow and mature and develop into God's people representing him in this world. And in that, uh, in that final kind of phase of becoming a nation, I just listed there that, that there was a cycle of experience. And that cycle of experience continues today. It was true in the Old Testament, it's true today, of faith, trusting God, and then uh, disobedience, God's discipline. I was told early on as a brand new Christian that, uh, that God is our Father. He's not our judge, but there is a divine woodshed uh, for God's people where God disciplines us. And in response to discipline, there's repentance. And in response to repentance, there's restoration. And you see that pattern continuing from Joshua's day on as God's people in, in temporary borders prepare ultimately to move in to, to God's ultimate place, and that is heaven, a place of his presence um, as we leave this earth and leave this life and go into life with him forever. Well, this morning, for just a few moments, we're going to look at the, uh, the second trip that Joseph uh, uh, experienced or his his brothers experienced as they came back to Egypt in uh, in chapter forty three, verses one and two we read now the famine in the land was severe that is in the land of Canaan, back where his brothers minus Simon who's in, under house arrest in Egypt. Uh, the famine there was was severe, and when they had used up the grain they had brought brought back from Egypt on their first trip. Their father said to them, go back and buy some more food. They had uh, left one of their brothers back in Egypt. It had been about two years since they'd been back home. The food had run out and now Jacob, the head of the clan, the father is saying, you, you fellas need to go back. At that point, Judah reminds Jacob that there's a condition And that is that Joseph's condition uh, for subsequent help was you need to bring your brother Benjamin back. Now that was problematic for Jacob because uh, Benjamin, 
that his first favorite son, at least to his knowledge, was no longer alive. And so, or Joseph was no longer alive. And now Benjamin has assumed that place of Jacob's favorite. And he really struggles in chapter 43 with, with what it would mean to send Benjamin with the other brothers back to Egypt as Joseph had demanded. Uh, he struggled with that. The first time he ordered his son Joseph to go and be with his brothers, he had lost that son, at least to his understanding. And he was very reluctant to, uh, to risk the life of his new favorite son, Benjamin. But Judah prevailed. And the prevailing uh, is, is important uh, because it's an expression that, uh, that Judah was a person that God was working in his life. When uh, he and his dad were talking together, Judah said in verse 8 to his father, Send the boy with me. We will be on our way so that we may live and not die, neither we nor you nor our children. I will be responsible before him. You can hold me personally accountable if I do not bring him back. To you and set him before you. I will be guilty before you forever. And so Judah here, who was the one who first suggested that Joseph be killed. And then suggested that he be uh, sold into slavery. Is now in a place where he uh, he is embracing a whole new perspective. Both towards another favored son the the old jealousies don't seem to be there at least don't seem to have captured his heart like they had 20 years previously or 22 years previously when uh when he had been so desirous of uh of being rid of his his brother joseph and we also see here uh judah's love for his dad and it's in uh, in his willingness to as it were, say, I will pledge with my life that I'll protect your son, Benjamin. And I'll take responsibility for him and I'll bring him back here. Under those conditions, uh, Jacob released Benjamin to go with his brothers back to Egypt for this second trip and to try to, to gather more food. And so they, they come... Uh, Verse 15 of chapter 43, the men took uh, gifts, doubled the amount of money, and they took Benjamin. And they made their way down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his steward, Take the men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare it, for they will eat with me at noon. And so as these brothers arrive back in Egypt, as soon as Joseph sees them, he orders his uh, servant to, uh, to take them to his home and prepare a meal so that he can sit and celebrate with them. One of the things we pick up in that context is that Joseph's brothers were very um, suspicious. They were, uh, in some ways, paranoid. And you'd seen this earlier. Every time something would go wrong in their life, 
Every time something wouldn't, uh, wouldn't happen just as they had hoped it would or thought it should, uh, they, would, uh, they would be emotionally rattled by that. And we see that as, uh, as they prepare to have this meal in Joseph's home. Um, they were afraid, verse 18 tells us. And they began to talk together and they said uh, they intend to overpower us, to seize us, to make us slaves and to take our donkeys. The brothers are, are in essence kind of paranoid about what, what might await them as they're now back in, in Joseph's presence for the second time in Egypt. And that's a pattern you see as you study uh, these, these chapters is every time something went wrong in the lives of these men, there would be a, uh, a fear. The old guilt would surface. All of the old emotions would, uh, would, would come in on them. And they found themselves uh, unable to really relax and to, to experience God's favor and His blessing because their past kept haunting them. Chuck Twindall in his commentary on Joseph's life says, Paralyzed by guilt... They feared the worst when Joseph, dominated by grace, was planning the best. And so the, the paranoia and the fear, the shame, the uh, concern over being discovered enabled them to, uh, to enter these circumstances where things just didn't seem to be going well. And they, they couldn't relax. They couldn't anticipate God's goodness. They couldn't appreciate God's provision. They found themselves uh, skeptical and unable to, to anticipate God's blessing because their past haunted them. It, uh, it traumatized them as a result of how they had traumatized their brother Joseph in doing what they did to him. In this context, uh, when Joseph looked up and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, both uh, Joseph and Benjamin had the same mother. And that was uh, in, undoubtedly part of why Jacob uh, had favored them because of their mother Rachel. When he saw him, he asked, Is this your youngest brother that you told me about? Then they said, may God be gracious to you, my son. Then he said, may God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph hurried out because he was overcome with emotion for his brother. And he was about to weep. And he went into an inner room and wept. And then he washed his face and he came out. And regaining his composure, he said, serve the meal. And so a meal was served. And, and Joseph spent time in the presence of his brothers. One of the interesting things that I found in studying this passage is uh, in verse 33 of chapter 43, we're told that uh, Joseph seated his brothers in the order of their birth around a table. And the passage says that uh, the brothers were kind of taken aback by that, that uh, they were actually seated around this table in the order of their birth. Some statistician has calculated that the the possible combination of seating arrangements for 11 brothers around a table is uh, 39,917,000 possible combinations of seating. 
And out of 39,917,000 possible combinations, Joseph, because he knew the order, had seated his brothers around a table in the order of their birth. It's at this point that, uh, that Joseph tests his brothers. This is uh, the final test. There was one earlier, and uh, he was testing them because he wanted to discern whether, in fact, they were the same people that he had experienced 22 or so years prior when they had uh, so in such cruelty and in, uh, in such animosity rejected him and, uh, and abandoned him. Are these the same people? Or, or has God been at work? Is there a difference in their lives? <clears throat> and so Joseph orchestrates this test. In, uh, in verse 1 of chapter 44, Then Joseph commanded his steward, Fill the men's bags with as much food as they can carry, and put each man's money at the top of his bag. That's what he'd done the first time. He'd sent money back with them that they had paid him for the food. He's doing the same thing again. <clears throat> the last time he did that, when they found out that the money was in their sacks, that paranoia struck them in chapter 42, and they began to talk about the fact that God is punishing us because of what we did to our brother Joseph years ago. But he does it again. And then he says, Put my cup, the silver one, at the top of the youngest one's bag along with his grain and money. So he did as Joseph had told him. At morning light, the men were sent off with their donkeys. Joseph's brothers were sent back home with the food with their money returned, and Benjamin with a silver cup in his sack. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his servant, Get up, pursue the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from? And so there is a... There's a an environment set up and orchestrated for Joseph to discern the heart of his brothers, the hearts of his brothers. It's evident in their response that their character has changed. Um, Judah says to the servant who had come and overtaken them and uh, was about to go through each of their sacks, and would, in time, when he got to Benjamin's sack, find the, the silver cup that he had planted in Benjamin's sack. Judah says this, If any of us is found to have it, he must die, and we also will become my Lord's slaves. The servant replied, What you have said is right, but only one of you, the one who is found to have it, will be my slave, and the rest of you will be blameless. Joseph had orchestrated an environment now where it would be easy if there hadn't been changes in the life of his brothers, particularly in Judah's life. Perfect opportunity to do again what they had done 22 years previously. The steward searched beginning with the oldest and ending up with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then the brothers tore their clothes 
And each one loaded his donkey and returned to the city. When they came into Joseph's presence, um, here's what we read. When they came to, uh, what we, what can we say to my Lord? This is Judah speaking for all the brothers to Joseph. What can we say to my Lord? How can we plead? How can we justify ourselves? God has exposed your servants to iniquity. There's that same theme. Every time something went wrong, there was something inside of them that said, you know, God is doing this. God is bringing about these circumstances that are difficult, that are stressful, that are undesirable, that are threatening. God's bringing those circumstances to bear on us because we haven't come to grips really with what we did 22 years ago to our brother Joseph. And so he says, God has exposed your servants' iniquity. We are now, my Lord's slaves, both we and the one who's, in whose possession the cup was found. Then Joseph said, I swear that I will not do this. The man who is in whose possession the cup was found will be my slave. The rest of you can go in peace. Here's their opportunity. All they have to do is pack up and leave. They would be leaving Benjamin, and they'd have to go back home and face Jacob, and they'd have to explain once again that, uh, that Jacob's favorite wasn't able to return with them. But their response is, is not that. It was, it was the perfect opportunity to demonstrate that they were the same people that they'd been years before. But that didn't happen. Jacob uh, asks to be able to speak to Joseph. And he comes up close to Joseph and he speaks and he says, Now please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave. In, in place of the boy, let him go back to his brothers. For how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. Joseph's, or Judah's changed heart becomes transparent here. Not only for his brother Benjamin, but also for his father. And it's at that, at that point that Joseph knows that he is is safe and appropriate in revealing to himself, uh, revealing to his brothers who he really is. Just masterfully, uh, Joseph set the stage to test his brothers, to discern whether they were changed men. Gave them the perfect opportunity to do what they had done years before and to uh, God's honor and glory. God had begun to change their hearts. And Judah, representing those men, uh, expresses that change, even to the extent of wanting to give his life for his brother Benjamin's so that, uh, that his father wouldn't be uh, grieved once again having lost a favored son. And so it's in that context that Joseph uh, opens up to his brothers and allows them to, uh, to recognize who he is. And that scene is, uh, is well known. And the, uh, 
The challenge is, as Joseph says to his brothers, I'm Joseph. I'm the one that you sold into slavery. And I'm the one, and he goes into an explanation in chapter 45. I'm the one that God sent here before you. As he describes his own circumstances over these intervening years, he is so conscious of the fact that nothing has happened in his life that wasn't a part of the plan of a God who was both sovereign and providential and a God who was loving and merciful and was about doing good. That, that dominates Joseph's thinking. And it's the, it's the basis upon which he can forgive his brothers, not only forgive them, but be in a place to want to, uh, to bless them. And so there's this great description in, Isaiah, in, uh, in Genesis 45 of that conversation where Joseph says over and over, I forgive you because I know that God was at work. Even though you meant this, as he says later in chapter 50, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. It was that, uh, that conviction that gripped him and freed him to forgive his brothers. You know, how can we forgive people that uh, reject us, that traumatize us, that cause us suffering? How can we forgive people that uh, separate us from folks that we love by the actions that they take against us? How can we forgive people who hurt us and who abandon us and reject us? That was the the situation that Joseph faced. But he had determined that his brothers were changed men. And it was that determination that freed him up to, to forgive them and ultimately to provide for them. The story ends as, as Joseph encourages his brothers to go back and to get their father, Jacob, and bring him back to Egypt. And Joseph says to his brothers, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you land that's the prime property in Egypt. You'll be living near me, and I'm going to provide, I'm going to ensure that everything you need is available to you. And so the brothers go back, and they gather their dad and their families, and the whole family relocates to Egypt. And, and that's the beginning of this 400-year period when God allows that small family of a dad and and 12 brothers and their wives and children to, to multiply into a substantive critical mass of people organized around 12 tribes that, that are driven out of the womb of Egypt, as it were, organized in the desert and taken into the land that will become the borders of their promised property. So just as we conclude, uh, a couple of thoughts about how we can apply the principles that come out of this section of Genesis. The first is that God tests our character to position us for his provision. God tests our character. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 we read, Remember that the Lord your God led you 
on the entire journey, those 40 years in the wilderness as the Jewish people wandered around so that he might humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you by letting you go hungry and he gave you manna to eat. God humbles us and draws us to repent so that he can position us to be the recipients of his blessing. If there's anything in your life or mine that we haven't brought to the Lord, no matter how scandalous, no matter how uh, humiliating it might be, bringing that to the Lord frees him to, to bring blessing to us. That was the story of Joseph's experience. The repentance of his brothers and our repentance positions us to experience God's forgiveness and his favor. This morning as uh, we conclude our time together, I would encourage you to, uh, to think back over your life. Are there things that, uh, that you haven't brought before the Lord and allowed him to, to cleanse and purify you of, to forgive you for? Are there things that uh, cause you to be hesitant and skeptical and not to be able to appreciate and to savor and to experience his goodness and his blessing? The way he positions you to be able to enter into and enjoy all that he has for you is that, uh, that you and I deal with those things that, uh, that dishonored him and displeased him. And his promise is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just. He'll forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a great God. What a wonderful Father who just waits to position us through repentance to be in a place where he can, can forgive and he can favor us with his good gifts, his provision. That's what's pictured in, in Joseph's life and in Joseph's experience with his brothers. Would you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Father, I thank you for this passage. Well, thank you, Ricky, for that uh, wonderful teaching. And uh, what a great example of foreshadowing that God has given to us through Joseph. Uh, the, the brothers had a need, and in his divine providence, God met that need through Joseph. And in the same way, we have a need for forgiveness, and he provided that divinely through his son Jesus. And so Jesus reminds us of that provision uh, in Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor, earn heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then Paul as well reminds us, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so as we... Uh, are reminded of what he's provided for us. Let us 
trust in that. Let us put our faith in that and let us share that with others. And all God's people said, amen.